0: Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting vanityfair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's vanityfair.com, promo code POD15 for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now.
1: Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to...
1: And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me
3: right now. You like
4: me! I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us again is our senior editor, Hilary Busis. Hello. Guys, we're heading into the 4th of July weekend holiday. It feels like summer properly, even though no one's leaving their house, et cetera. The world is still kind of a mess. But I feel like it's been a tradition, at least since maybe Orange is the New Black started on Netflix, that like this period of summer is when you just get a ton of new stuff to watch, which is really enjoyable for when you want to be inside in the air conditioning. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that's out there and available for you to watch on your screens very soon. Um, Some good, some bad, uh, some big nostalgia trips. So we have a lot to talk about. And then in the back half of this episode, we're going to have two more uh, Emmy season interviews. We have Mike talking to Bob Odenkirk, the star of Better Call Saul, of course. And then Joanna talking to Caitlin Deaver about her performance on Netflix's Unbelievable. Uh, And Emmy nomination voting begins soon. So everybody, uh, if you've got a ballot, get ready. Start paying attention. And we'll be talking more about that next week, too. But first, guys... Um, let's start with a movie that's been out for a little while now. Um, John Stewart's Irresistible, which like many of the things that stay being on streaming was supposed to go to theaters at some point. Uh, it is out. I have not seen it. I have been a little wary, and Hillary and Richard, I think you guys might tell me why I should be.
4: Yeah. Yes.
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, this movie belongs, I think I compared it on Twitter maybe, to the newsroom in that it's like a missive from a guy who's been quiet for a little bit but wants you to hear all the, you know, sparkling salient things he said at a dinner party sort of recently. <laughs> like, it just, it, it's very, it's about, like, it's a movie about, um like, the high cost of elections and how that really warps democracy in America, which is a very fair point to make and a very true thing to try to fix. But it's done in a way that feels really dated, um, like it was made 10 years ago or even longer, with a kind of an added bit of smarm and a sort of ignorance of very, I mean, not, you know, look, movies are made sort of in a vacuum because you, you don't know what's going to be happening when they come out, when you're making it. So it's always tricky to be predictive with a movie, but it just feels so completely just out of time and anachronistic. And uh, it just, it isn't good, which is kind of disappointing.
3: Yeah, it's a comedy that doesn't have a lot of jokes, uh, which is perhaps the first and largest sin that it commits. Um, But yeah, Richard, I agree with you completely. It also uh, reminded me a little bit of the movie Longshot, uh, the Seth Rogen, Charlize Theron rom-com that came out, what, last year? Mm -hmm. Um, But also felt kind of like it had been in a time capsule since, like, the early Obama, maybe even late Bush years. In Longshot, I guess it was more, you know, we should be able to get along despite our differences. Um, You know, Republicans and Democrats aren't really so different. Uh, And in... Irresistible. I feel like it has that same mood, except that the main point is like liberals and conservatives, or Democrats and Republicans more specifically, are both, you know, corrupt and driven by money, and ideology is just a smokescreen, and what you actually believe doesn't really matter. Um, which also really does feel like a relic of a time when a certain class of person, I guess, could believe that politics was really just kind of a game about like winning and that that issues were not really important in themselves, but more just as like cudgels that people use to try to win voters over. Um, So I don't know that it it left a bad taste in my mouth Um,
1: because of the amount of cynicism involved in a point of view like that, that it's like, ah, they're all in it for the game and like ignoring that these are the people who control our lives.
5: And it reduces politics to semantics, which sometimes it can be, sure, and sometimes it can just be like venal and and out for money. And of course, like all those things are true. But in Irresistible, Stewart, I think kind of surprisingly, venerates this ludicrous idea of, you know, small white midwestern town values and how that is the true america and if we just would you know stop with all the pars and bickering and just listen we'd re- we'd come to realize we all want the same thing and that we is not a very inclusive we in this movie and i think that's part of the point in a way but then as the movie draws to a close with a really unearned twist it doesn't say enough about its demographics and and it, the kind of you know Americans it's holding up as some kind of ideal if that was done more ironically as if to say this is not nearly enough in terms of one's conception of the voting public in America fine that would be one but that movie the movie doesn't do that it kind of does stick to its the original terms of like this is true Americana and here are the people we should be listening to Mm -hmm. um which is not to say we shouldn't be listening to those people, but there are also lots of other people. Um, right,
3: like that's a, a great uh, point that K. Austin Collins, um, our other film critic, made in his review. He pointed out that this is a movie that makes a joke of Republicans turning their backs on Black voters, but it doesn't have really any speaking roles for Black characters or really any non-white characters at all. It's sort oh, of... Crazy. There's a crazy. Yeah, there's a scene set at you know, like a fancy donor party that like, has a couple of, I guess, coastal elite, like, Black people cornering the the salt-of-the-earth politician who's played by Chris Cooper. Um, And it sort of treats their identity like this affectation. And I mean, it's it's a, like a blink-and-you'll-miss-it thing. Uh, but, like, that's kind of the only point that the movie grapples with, the idea that there is anybody in America besides white people even though the reason that Chris Cooper's character draws the attention of Steve Carell's character who's this political strategist in the first place is because he makes a speech about how immigrants should be treated well and like other Americans. So I don't know, it's it's a it's got a lot of kind of threads that don't really add up.
1: That is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I feel like we need a good political satire right now because so much of the state of modern politics is hard to pin down and it changes all the times. And like, in some ways, we're kind of like living through too much of it to want to escape into that. Um, so maybe it's just that like we don't need any kind of satire right now. But it does feel especially frustrating to get this much talent behind one that that doesn't hit anything.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about a movie like this, and 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 John Stewart has in his press tour for the film actually said a lot more interesting things that pertain to the current moment. So he has that in him. He has that capacity, but the movie doesn't really reflect that. But but the movie uh, just, you know, like I said, it feels anachronistic and, and it feels like it's from a time which the Bush years really, sh- when, you know, when Stewart's career really, you know, flourished, um, should not have been this because there were so many horrible things going on just beneath, um, you know, a sort of perceived surface. But they were in, in in some ways like we were kind of new post 9-11 to like this kind of dark irony about, you know, the mechanics of power and all these things. And, and Stuart was good at that. And, and you know, Michael Moore was making movies that, that spoke to that. I mean, he'd been doing it before then, too. But, but I think that what this current moment, the Trump era, has really proven is that there was so much else howling beneath all of that that... A movie about the sort of aesthetics of politics, the aesthetics of an era, really is ina- inadequate to mm. to discuss the problems of America. and And the problems can be as technical as campaign financing, which is a huge problem. But they're all, you know, but those are part of a of a big, long continuum of leading all the way down to like hell, essentially. And <laughs> and this movie just skates over a lot of that in a way that just feels totally useless frankly it's just like what is it? what what, what point is being made here that can't already be made frankly you know in a tweet thread Um, Mm. you know that said I like some of the performances Rose Byrne plays a very funny Republican political operative and I think she's one of the people who's kind of actually like elevates the satire it's always nice to see Chris Cooper in something uh, you know, it 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 the movie and the movie looks good. Like it it has, you know, it it's filmed well. It's not a bad piece of filmmaking. It's just, I think, a bad piece of writing.
1: Yeah. Um. Well, we can move on to the other movie that is out there right now in the world for everyone to watch, uh, which I don't think was ever going to go to theaters. Eurovision was always going to be a Netflix exclusive, right? Even though it has massive or, Mm -hmm. you know, significant movie stars Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell. I feel like I read a really big round of raves about this, including yours, I think, Richard. And then a lot of more people coming in being like, what the hell is this? And, you know, comedy can be like that for a lot of people. Um, I have watched maybe half of it, um, but it does kind of feel like, you know, there's no theatrical comedies. There's so few uh, studio comedies made anymore either that it feels kind of like churlish to criticize your vision for maybe being too long when it's got so much to give you. Um, is, Is that maybe where you guys landed on it?
5: Yeah, I mean, what I liked about the movie was well, the, the songs are good. The songs are genuinely good. You know, they got yeah. this like experienced music producer to work with other people to make these songs that sound like real Eurovision songs. Um, so that was the first thing it really had to get right if it wanted to kind uh, of nail the tone. But in also nailing the tone, I think it's important that. The movie is, is is poking fun at Eurovision, which, if people don't know, is this, like, long-running song contest among the nations of Europe, but also Australia and Israel and I think a few other outliers, you know, where they compete. You know, each nation presents a song with a singer or a band or whatever, and it's become a big international thing because it's moved on the internet, and, uh, you know, America finally caught wind of it a few years ago, but, like, ABBA was on it, you know, in the early 70s. But anyway, the point is they don't, they don't, like, Outright, like fillet the thing. I mean, there—it's a loving kind of poking fun. Um, yeah, because what's the that gain
1: that's... In, in filleting Eurovision at this point? Like you well, exactly, know, they're, they're, and like, it's also so I harmless.
5: think there's nothing to gain in in doing really any of that for something that's just like a celebration of like art and music you know like good that's fun what, what a what a what a lark um you know i'm sure that there are complicated and probably not great politics behind eurovision as there are behind pretty much everything um <laughs> but uh please don't
1: ruin your envision for us richard <laughs> yeah i was going to say that making
3: fun of eurovision is like making fun of ice skating which is something that's you know already kind of inherently ridiculous and then i remembered that will ferrell already made a movie doing that (laughs)
5: But that felt a lot Snyder, you know, that felt a lot more like straight guys being like, you know, whatever this, I think, you know, Farrell's gotten older, he co-wrote the movie. Um, I think he just kind of appreciates the goofiness and and the character he plays, who's this buffoon from a small Icelandic town who, you know, saw Abba perform uh, on the show in the early 70s. And became like that became his dream to perform at Eurovision. He's, yeah, he's a goof in in a traditional feral way, but and he's vain in a way, but he's also, he's kind, and he really just wants to do a nice thing, and so does his singing partner, played by Rachel McAdams. And, and, you know, there are some minor complications, but mostly it's just kind of a nice thing about people wanting to make something that they like and are proud of and that other people will like. And uh, who can argue with that, you know?
3: Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough how catchy the songs are. Like, I have had (laughs) some of them stuck in my head for going on weeks at this point, um, which is really, I don't know, I don't ask very much of a musical. Uh, that is base- the the very baseline. Um, and in that sense, Eurovision knocks it out of the park.
5: Yeah, I'm glad you called it that. It is a musical. I mean, it's something like a jukebox musical, but all the jukebox songs are new. Are fake, yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is great. <laughs> yeah. we Can we
1: alert the Golden Globes? Uh, I don't, I, I think eligibility means that Eurovision is in play if we want it to be, right?
5: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: It should totally be nominated. I mean, Rachel McAdams should be, I say this with a straight face, Rachel
3: McAdams should be nominated for comedy actress. She's so funny in the movie.
1: Well, and there's like a decent drumbeat for Dan Stevens. I watched far enough into the movie to see his first performance and like laughed throughout the entire thing. And I look forward to seeing more of it. Um, And again, like not to be the award psychopath who wants to talk about the Oscars are happening in a year. um, But like, isn't this the kind of supporting performance that like we would ordinarily be like, come on, everybody pay attention to this. Yeah, I can get I can get on board. (laughs)
5: Yeah, no, I I think so. And I think also about the Dan Stevens character, like, you know, he's playing the Russian competitor who, you know, is ridiculous, and also vain and, and a bit of a, you know, a lech and a sort of devious character. But but you know true to this movie's general spirit like toward the end i'm not going to spoil how or why but they soften him and seek to understand him a bit more and his place in the country he's from and and the world that he lives in and you know that's appreciated too it just it the movie every time i think the movie is going to go for the kind of nasty joke it pulls the punch, and it does something nicer, and still funny, you know, it's a, it's a it's a there's a I mean, there are elves sort of in the movies. It's a very silly movie. But I think it's heart as trite as this is to say is really in the right place.
3: Yeah, I agree. It's I and it's refreshing to see a comedy, Richard, like you said that it's not punching up or down. It's not really punching at all. It's just kind of a pleasant movie about nice people who have a dream and then they get to live it out. Which feels kind of small, I guess, when you describe it that way, but I don't, I don't know what more you're looking for during a summer where the world is on fire. Yeah, right? exactly.
1: Like some, someone succeeding in some small way, uh, especially, you know, performing for a packed room of people. What a, what a fantasy. <laughs> yeah, international travel. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the beginning, like, I assume they sh- actually shot in Iceland because the uh, exteriors in the beginning of the movie are incredible. It makes Iceland look, or wherever it is, look amazing. Which I did not expect from a, a Will Ferrell Eurovision movie. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. All that, um, all that, like ice and water and, and big skies. It really made me want to get the hell out of Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Well, speaking super briefly about performing for rooms full of people, uh, as we record this, the embargo for Hamilton is up, uh, which is a funny thing to say for a musical that premiered five years ago. And the Disney Plus version is just a filmed version of the musical. Uh, I don't think there's any surprises or spoilers to be had. Um, I have not watched all of it. I watched some of it. I'm really establishing my track record for not watching things on the show. I'll promise I'll be better next week. Anyway, I was just so happy. We're going to report you to the Better Podcast Bureau, Katie. <laughs> um, just like listening to the audience applaud at the beginning of Hamilton, which will be on Disney Plus this Friday. Like, whew, it, may, it gave me a lot of feelings. I'm, I've just been really excited for it to be there. Um, and Sonya's going to be reviewing it for us. I think we're going to talk about it more next week. Um, but Richard, you watched uh, some of the uh, the Hamilton screener as well, right?
5: Yeah, I think I mentioned this on the podcast. Like, I don't know, at this point, who knows? So a few weeks, a month ago, I don't know. But uh, that I, you know, I got offered tickets to Hamilton as a press person years ago when it was at the public theater before it moved to Broadway. I said, eh, we'll see what the critics say. And then obviously I was never able to see it ever, you know, since then. Um, So I have never seen Hamilton until watching. uh, Oh my God, you're like
3: Mike Myers in Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs)
5: Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, So it was, you know, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to, um, to finally see it in some form. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks maybe it had to be there cause it, and, and maybe, you know, five years after all the hype, it, it, it can't possibly live up to that. But I, what I will say, you know, and similar to you, Katie saying like the applause at the beginning and, and the lights darkening it made me really, really miss going to theater. Mm. and um, Which officially
1: won't be back until January. I guess that news broke yesterday.
5: Th- yeah, Broadway Theater, certainly, yeah. Or actually, any. yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, it had that pull for me right now, at least. But I think also that I felt that kind of, you know, the, the chills on the back of my neck, like that really excited feeling of, does bring me back to when I was a kid and watching the PBS great performances taping mm-hmm. of Into the Woods, and that was really my you know first entree into like loving theater, and and so regardless of what I think of like the text of Hamilton and, and its legacy, I'm really glad it's there on a platform like Disney Plus where kids can easily discover it. You know, I don't think there are going to be too many parents who are you know stringently watching you know monitoring what their kids are pressing play on on Disney Plus. Um, <laughs> like
1: the kids are going to sneak it in, when, like their parents think they're watching. Watching, like DuckTales and they watch Hamilton <laughs> there, are there are guns I guess yeah, there's swear words like it, it's yeah. definitely like it's for 10 adult themes I mean I was yeah. planning on showing my almost 4 year old some of it because we've listened to it in the car so much um, but yeah I mean I think he's in that sweet spot of like not grasping the stuff that might be more disturbing
5: yeah. And, and whatever kid catches it, you know, it happens to watch it either in its entirety or just even a part of it. I hope it instills in them some excitement about like, when this is all over, like, Mom, Dad, I want to go see a play, you know, um, yeah. I want to see a musical. Um, I think that that is what bringing theater that is so inaccessible for a variety of reasons, both economic and geographic uh, into people's lives. There's a real cultural value in that.
1: There's also something and, you know, we could probably talk about this in more detail at some point. Um, You know, I thought for a while Hamilton felt like this uh, relic of the Obama era because, you know, so soon after it premiered, Trump was elected and it was like this optimistic look at how America can grow. But I think watching even the little bit of it I did after the protests and as all these Confederate monuments come down and seeing a black George Washington on stage and seeing all of these actors of color playing these historical figures like talking about taking history into their own hands, it was really moving all over again. Um, and it made, me, it made me think about how its legacy is going to uh, probably grow with the decades, which is one of the many reasons I think it's just going to um, be a classic forever. Okay, for our final new release topic, and truly the reason that I've gathered us all here today, uh, is to talk about The Babysitter's Club. It is on Netflix. It is a 10-episode adaptation of the book series that, you know, if, if you know you know, like, you hear the word Babysitter's Club, you can name all seven members off the top of your head. And we have all three watched it. I think... Um, I think, Hillary, you're the one who got me excited for it. And then I got Richard excited for it. Now we've all been radicalized into the the cult of Christy Thomas. This is how um, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Christy makes one phone call. Um, this Richard, is the future the liberals want. <laughs> well, I mean, Richard, that's kind of what your review gets into. And a lot of them do that. Like, this is a, a way to do nostalgia with this progressive bent to it um, that feels so refreshing and open. Um, anyway, your review is a rave. Is that is that the thing that made you fall over for it, or were there other elements too?
5: I mean, that's certainly an aspect of it—the way that it, 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 you know, takes Anna Martin's books, which were, I think, largely the provenance of the '80s, right? Like that was like maybe late yeah 70s? '80s, yeah. mid
1: to early. I think that yeah. the movie came out in '95. So kind can kind of tell you where the peak yeah. of
5: popularity
3: was. I think it's like mid '80s, mid '90s, or the heyday of
5: yeah the BSC, and, and my-
3: as those in the know call it. <laughs>
5: My understanding of the books is that, you know, they, they tried to address issues as they could in, in their time, and, and but the adaptation for 2020, for that audience, um, they've done it very carefully and really organically introduced things like, uh, you know, gender identity and, and various other, you know, things that we talk about a lot more than we did back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciated that. But I think for me, what really won me over was it's a show that unlike so many other shows or movies about kids who are on the you know the borderland of teenage them or in you know fully in their teens is it doesn't force them to be older than they are it doesn't you know make them snarky precocious it you know they're funny they're charming they you know they 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 speak a little bit like little adults sometimes but in a way that like sometimes kids that age do and the actors i feel like are are cast so carefully to communicate that like this is about these girls in middle school and their experiences and we're going to take those experiences as seriously as they do and treat them with you know an earnest approach that doesn't condescend or ask that they, you know, sort of live outside the the typical boundaries of what we would think that someone at that age is doing or thinking. So it just feels very, as much as it sort of is kind of a fantasy town, this Stony Brook, Connecticut, it feels really, you know, real in in, in an emotional sense. And I think that that's yeah. really important. And I hope that that comes across to the intended age audience, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, Hillary, as someone who did read the books as a kid, as I did, um... Did it feel like the Stony Brook and that the BSC that you remember, even with all these um, updates for the modern day? Yeah,
3: I really was surprised at how seamlessly um, the story was translated into the the 2020s or 20-teens or whenever it's, I guess, lit- now. literally supposed to take place now. Right. Um, I was expecting, I guess, there to be yeah for technology to somehow have more of an effect on the story than it does um but no i I, and i think that that kind of speaks to the universality and the timelessness of the books that they're not really about the 80s or the 90s they're about friends and these dynamics between girls at that age that i guess really are the same no matter what year it is um and so that's yeah that's like a, a beautiful earnest um thing but yeah it doesn't come across as as saccharine um it just has, uh, like, this, like, core of, like, emotional purity, I guess. I feel, I sound like a crazy person right now talking about the Babysitter's Club this way. But, but, it, it, uh, but I, it's that right. Is, yeah.
1: Because I feel like the books are all about, like, they're, they're about these girls who you want to look up to and who do the right thing, but kind of acknowledge that doing the right thing is hard. It's about kids, like, wanting to be selfish and wanting to, like ditch their friends to go with a boy or something like that and then kind of coming around to recognizing that that's not the right thing to do. But it's not in like a, oh, well, just be a good person and learn how to do it. It's like understanding what sacrifice is and what like being a friend or being there for someone is. And also learning empathy for other people, like uh, the... um,
3: Yeah, it has, I think, the... It has the twist that a lot of great children's books have, which is that the main character, who in this case is basically Christy, um, the books you know travel from perspe- between perspectives. But I think in the series it seems like Christy is pretty solidly the protagonist, um, which is that she's kind of a jerk a lot of the time, um, <laughs> in like a very like believable way and in a very age appropriate way, like uh, like a Harriet the Spy or like a Meg in a Wrinkle in Time. Like she's sort of selfish she's sort of uh, you know figuring out who she is in the world um how to deal with disappointments and things uh that make her you know relatable without making her too you you root for her and you like her like she's a she's a good example like uh of a tween age, you know of a tween age girl yeah but she's right exactly she's very recognizable she's very real um and so are all of the rest of the characters as
1: well yeah and you also you get the like Cooler characters like Don and Stacy and, and Claudia too, like all three of them. For me, reading the book, so it's like oh, Claudia I, I would, is so cool. Claudia I mean, is so cool. She on this show, she is so cool. The girl who they've um, they've cast is so like cute and endearing and like. Talented, Um, But they all have their vulnerabilities and, like, make mistakes, too. Um, I feel like maybe Dawn the least. Dawn might be the coolest of all of them in this version. You know, the the characters exist to be kind of these, like, buckets that you as a child reader, like, put yourself into and want to be just like them. But it also recognizes their, like, their mistakes and their ability to not know everything. Um, Which, you know, for me reading these when I was a much younger kid, I was like, ah, they're 13. They're infinite in their knowledge. And that's the thing that the show does really well, too, is that it's not
3: really this, like, Disney version of adolescence where, like, everything is polished and all of the the actors are, like, pretty natural. They're not shouting all of their lines. There's a scene where they put on a play and it's, like, the, a play that a bunch of 13-year-olds might actually put on. It doesn't have professional singers and, like, professional music and lighting and everything. And I don't know. I, I find that charming, too. Yeah.
5: yeah, they care about what they care about and not every plot development or plot line has to do with boys. I mean, there is some of that because, you know, that's an interest at the time um, for some kids that age. And But the show lets them care about other things that have nothing to do with the common, you know, sort of social uh, stuff that we see in a lot of programming for, you know, young teenagers or teenagers in general. Um, And I really value that. I mean, the, the last two episodes of the season are all at their summer camp. And it's all about standing up for your principles and protest and you know that this kind of stuff that like feels really relevant to today but isn't done in a head way it's done very much on the terms of like 13 year old girls having an issue at summer camp you know yeah um i don't know i just think that i would have liked it my sister would have liked it i'm mean, as, as kids that age we, i mean i love it now so is your um, do you,
1: have you told your sister to watch it because she you read her oh, books yeah. as a kid right
5: well i would sort of osmos the world through her i read a, maybe one or two but I mostly just, like... It, it, almost like she was, like, passing the lore down to me. Like, she... <laughs> like, the oral so, tradition of the baby Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, I got her version Same of it. Same <laughs> <like, laughs> of Claudia <laughs> yeah, Kishi. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And
3: the gummy bears hidden inside of her closet.
5: <laughs> but, like, I, I knew, you know, from years ago that, like, the bedrooms were always very intricately described. And, mm-hmm. like, I knew that Karen, the little sister, was annoying. And I knew, you know, like, I knew this stuff... Um, and something I say in my review is that when the movie came out in '95, my sister was sort of the person I looked to to just, to tell me whether or not the movie worked. Um, and she said, "Oh no, it's trying to be cool. It's not. It's not a good representation of the books." By then, she was like 14, so like maybe she was just over it in general. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do feel watching this show that I finally get it. Like this feels from everything that my sister told me when we were kids this feels like what she was talking about and um i think that's such a triumph of adaptation by rachel Schukert, the the creator of the show and all of her writing staff like they just i mean kind of similar to eurovision in a weird way they just got the right tone they picked the right tone and they cultivated it well and that's what made it successful
3: yeah i appreciate it also as an adult uh how when they get to summer camp, uh, they all expect that they're going to be counselors or counselors in training, and the camp director is like, "No, you're 13," which is something <laughs> yeah. that yeah. I gotta say as as the as a mother now. I don't know how comfortable I would feel hiring a, an actual 13 year old to watch my baby.
1: And well, there is that plot point earlier on where they're like, "No, you can't babysit the newborn guys. You just like they need someone who is an adult to babysit a newborn." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's there's some reality checks. In also, there.
5: you have to be home by 9 p.m. and you can't drive. So <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like they keep referencing that which i think is really good i mean it's like yeah like there are borders to this thing it's not you know i think there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who who make things about like precocious kids like want to make them little adults and like they're just like bizarrely competent and like kind of talk down to grown-ups but in this show they're like no you are a kid and yeah. and here are some limits because kids you know require that
3: and we should also probably mention Alicia Silverstone yes. as
1: Christie's mother speaking of people who can't drive <laughs> oh my
3: god but yeah it's really it's really nice to see her in this and she plays this like warm maternal role very well um as not just like a bit of stunt casting but she actually like is good for the role in yeah. other ways
1: there's a I, I i tweeted that like i basically cried through every episode which is a <laughs> maintained but the the wedding episode for christy's mom there's the scene they have at the end of the episode that they're both so good in and just like oh it's it was such a balm. <laughs>
5: You know what the wedding episode reminded me of? And I agree, Alicia Silverstone's great, and I feel like the casting is like a little bit of like a for the nostalgic grown-ups, like, hey, you know, look, you know, remember her? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From your era. Um, but the wedding episode, did you did either of you ever watch the wonderful Ramona Quimby series with Sarah Pauly that ran on PBS? No. I
1: didn't uh, even know there was a TV version. Yeah,
5: I think it must have only run for like a few episodes on PBS like years ago. But my Sarah Polly played Ramona um and my family loved that show and there is one episode from one of the books adapted from one of the books called the perfect day and ramona is i think a flower girl at a wedding or maybe a, a junior bridesmaid
3: i remember this
5: and it's just <laughs> such a lovely little Moments in time like uh, you know no not, no her family her mom isn't getting remarried or anything like that like it is in babysitter's club but like just like how a big event like that feels like such a serious occasion for for kids that age um uh you know who are just otherwise kind of passive observers in it um yeah. so anyway i don't know i just again the getting the getting the tone right it just feels right
1: i am gonna have my parents i think dig out my babysitter's club books because i would love i just this makes me want to dive back into like a super special I hope it. I hope it would hold up. But this why did you bury them it. in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's in my time capsule to be found in oh, fifty right, years, of obviously.
5: <laughs> Katie's um, great idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone should watch the Babysitters Club, though. I think that uh, I think we can all give it our hearty endorsement, no matter how old you are or what attachment you have to the books. And now we're going to share an interview that Mike Hogan did with Bob Odenkirk, the star of Better Call Saul, and before that, Breaking Bad. He has a reputation for being just an incredibly nice person in an industry where there aren't always a lot of nice people. And I think you can hear that from the very beginning where he's talking about the dogs that are living in his house during quarantine. Um, And they also get into his experience of playing Saul for all this time and kind of how the character has evolved from Breaking Bad to Better Call Saul. So let's listen to that interview.
4: It's a huge pleasure to be here with Bob Odenkirk uh, via Zoom and your dogs. What are the names of the dogs? I'm I'm viewing on video these beautiful dogs that are with Bob in his yard.
2: I'm always hanging out with my dogs. So anybody who's seen interviews and podcasts with me is always (laughs) seeing my dogs. But that's because I love my dogs so much. Uh, Olive is the older one. She's six. And uh, Winnie is our coronavirus pandemic dog she's been at our house for three weeks
4: what does that mean a coronavirus pandemic dog you you adopted her
2: yeah 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 we got her three weeks ago you know my wife and daughter my daughter got home from pratt and you know she still had to finish her classes but there was a sense of you know a fair amount of free time can't see her friends or anything not a lot of social anything going on and uh, just, I think, as an activity and something, you know, warm and sweet to share, they went looking for uh, a puppy to adopt. So this dog is a year old. She's not a puppy, but, you know, she's got a lot of puppy energy, and uh, she's just been great. <laughs> so. That's
4: good. Yes, my dog has been a great, uh, great comfort through this whole thing. My wife and I actually the other day just said, you know, imagine if we didn't have this dog to go through this thing with. It really is. It's a mm-hmm. help. Mm-hmm. Um, So you are coming off this incredible season of uh, Better Call Saul. And since we are an awards podcast, you know, I do want to go through quickly. You've been nominated for three Golden Globes for your performance as Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman slash uh, Cinnabon Gene. And you have been nominated for four Emmys in uh, the category of Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series, as well as many other Emmys for writing, producing. You've you won two Emmys uh, back in the day as a writer for Ben Stiller's show and SNL. So this is a year that, we're, that we here at Little Gold Men are gunning for you to go up there and take the award as an actor.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see how much power yeah, yeah, you yeah. have. Maybe not that much, L- but we're going to try. See. Uh. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, being on my uh, team. But, uh, you know, it's all good people and all good shows. And, you know, I hope that we're included. I don't count on it. There, There's a degree of freshness that many of the other shows have. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we came out of Breaking Bad was the greatest um, positive you could ever have. On the other hand, it also means that to some people, it feels like our show's been on for 10 years. Right. I'm sorry, they're landing a helicopter on my porch <laughs> right now.
4: So, and this season, season five, the the penultimate season, I think probably most people listening know that this is a Breaking Bad prequel and that the, you know, the course of the show is taking us, um, the way that Breaking Bad took us from sort of good chemistry teacher uh, Walter White to sort of evil drug lord Walter White. This show is taking your character from charming rogue Jimmy McGill to sort of, you know, amoral criminal lawyer Saul Goodman. And so you're kind of, you're at least halfway through now in this season. How is that to play? So you're sort of in, you're sort of in an evolution state.
2: Truly, it's a harder trajectory to characterize. I think that in a way the the Walter White tale was dealing in higher sort of higher concept scenario. It was a midlife crisis. I mean, I'll let Vince describe it, but it was he could call it Mr. Chips to Scarface. I'm not sure they have as uh as, as rounded off a um conceptual description of the journey of Better Call Saul. It's a it's a more idiosyncratic individual uh, journey. I think if there's anything universal about it, it's to watch some people finding themselves or trying to find themselves that maybe people can relate to. But in, in so many ways, it's uh, it's just far more uh, idiosyncratic than, than Breaking Bad was. And uh, I'm just thankful that an audience would take the time to watch and care about these particular people. So as far as the journey, it's back and forth and back and forth. But what he's come to is an acceptance. And I think what he thinks is a a healthy um, choice to uh, decide when he'll be ethically compromised. And I don't think it works. I mean, I think he's now he's discovering that that doesn't really work and that he doesn't have total control over that. And then, of course, the incident of Breaking Bad is only further proof that, you know, you swim with the sharks, you're probably going to get eaten. And so he's on that journey. And um, what I've found good about it is there's a degree of self-awareness that the character has gained that has made it a lot easier for me to play him. He he was harder to play as a younger person because I'm 57 years old, and to play a person who was as naive about himself as he was, it was a challenge to kind of put that in my own eyes, put that degree of uh, self-delusion and... Uh, ignorance That's interesting. Uh, was was difficult.
4: Was that like you're reading the script and you're just thinking, "Oh, come on, man." Like you why would you do that? Is it hard to find the the motivation to sort of
2: Yeah, I mean, basically the first couple of years on the show, Jimmy had to do things where he was oblivious to his own bad choices and the ways in which that he would he would cause himself grief and that's something young people can do they can they can lie to themselves easier they can be oblivious they can they can uh get excited uh, and not notice the their own blind spots and uh the older you get the more the quicker you are to see it, your your uh, shortcomings if you grow as a person and i think most people do
4: and by the time you get to Gene Takovic, the the post Breaking Bad character that we see in these black and white sort of previews, he's operating at a level of you know self protective cynicism that's uh, you know rivals Mike Ermintrout, right? He's he's become totally there's nothing but self protection. Just he's like an armadillo. What's it like playing Gene? I mean, how do you how do you get into that headspace?
2: Gene is really really down. He's a person who's hiding inside his own body, and not only that, it's a person who, in his more organic state, is an incredibly social, uh, outgoing person who's had to, you know, bite his tongue for, at that point, I would think, months. Um, And, you know, I once met Abby Hoffman, you know, the famous radical who who actually was in hiding in upstate New York— You know, the FBI was after him and he he took a fake name and um, I think he altered his appearance and he was living in upstate New York. And then what did he do? After a few years, he started to campaign uh, for, I believe it was conservation causes in upstate New York. And he was ended up getting his picture in the paper and everything and then having to, you know, kind of come out from hiding. But he couldn't he couldn't help himself. Right.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. And I think that's true of this character too. I think he's having literally having like stress related you know collapse. Yeah. Right. Physical
4: collapse. So it's not that's not an end point. It's a it's a period of of time for him.
2: Yeah, I don't think he can carry on. Now, I am not real good at the bigger cosmology of Breaking Bad. I am not like one of the writers who spends a lot of focus you know, knowing the whole world. But if Walter White dies, right, in this explosion, right, Yeah. of this meth lab, is it possible that Jimmy Saul can come out from hiding? Right. I mean, who's after him after that explosion? Right. Uh, does he have legal issues? I don't know. And I, And even if he does, he might be able to come out from hiding as long as no one's trying to kill him.
4: Yeah, yeah. So there might be a happy ending for for Jimmy, Saul, Gene.
2: Look, I don't think that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, but especially Vince, I don't think they believe that people become better versions of themselves. At least they haven't shown that right. <laughs> <laughs> in any of their shows. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm a naive liberal, but I think it's possible. Yeah, I agree that it's not common but I do think it's possible that people can learn better, healthier lessons from their mistakes. And I, I agree that it's rare, but I would love it if this character found a way to come out of hiding and you know, say, have perspective on the choices he's made and find some a better uh, peace with his existence and with the world, uh, I'm not sure.
4: When do you find out what happens in season six? And will you find out all at once or will you get it episode by episode?
2: Oh no, no. I mean, unless they need to tell me for some physical reason, I will find out what happens in episode 13, 10, 13, whatever they're going to do. I will find out the week I read the final script. Cuz I really don't I really don't like to know. I really don't like to know. Yeah. Um I like to experience the thing as close to the actual acting experience as possible and to make it as alive as I can.
4: Yeah. I'm worried about Kim. Are you worried about Kim? I'm concerned about Kim.
2: Uh, very, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, this is a weird kind of math to do, but we know Mike dies uh, in Breaking Bad and Chuck died. I don't think they like to kill everybody off. Yeah. I think the writers sort of see it as a easy... Drama, Right. So I have a feeling that that can't be what happens. Yeah. But that's just a gut feeling. I know nothing.
4: Right, right, right.
2: I really know. I'm not being cute. I know nothing.
4: I wanted to ask you about the desert scene because it's so sort of intense. And in fact, you know, our critic wrote a great, uh, Sonia Saraya wrote a great piece um, that I totally agreed with about how Better Call Saul was such a great pandemic watch because it was so... Slow in a world that where it feels like everything's just going insane. It even though it's dark uh, and and tense and a lot of scary things happen, the deliberateness with which it happens is kind of you know soothing in its way, right? Um, and yet it it also resonates a lot with our world. But anyway, I asked her what I sh- what I should ask you about, and she said, "Ask him about the piss drinking scene." <laughs> so anyway, I got to ask you about that. This incredible scene in the desert where you guys are reduced to drinking your own. Um, yeah you know oh
2: well, look, it was first of all, I love strenuous physical shooting like that. We were in the desert for over two weeks. the temperature was over a hundred most days. It was genuinely dangerous for everyone, the entire crew. but our production team did a great job of trying to keep us safe, but it was a challenge, but like I say, I like pushing the limits because it really is you know it reminds us what a special job we have to get to portray people in extreme situations that also at the same time are safe (laughs) because uh, there's actually safety nearby if you need it but you get to play out these fantasies of of uh extreme life crises and it's cool to do that um I did not drink real piss. <laughs> I guess that makes me not a method actor. Right. I don't know. I think I'm a... Am I a method actor because I pretended to be in it and I made it look good? Um, I didn't see the need to. I thought I'll, I'll just do some acting. Um, it was persuasive it enough. Was, it was warm water <laughs> that had a strange little uh, kind of oblique tang. <laughs> An oblique tang. It's a good band name uh, because oblique it was—it ju- was literally oblique tang, because uh, it was just uh, food coloring. So I got—it was not hard to pretend, and it certainly wasn't hard to pretend the exhaustion and the feeling of being just beat up and and uh, drained, because we genuinely were. Uh, of course, not what you would be if you tried to lug. I think it's 125 pounds of money. Uh, you'd never make it.
4: I wanted to ask you, you know, we talk a lot about the Oscars on this podcast, and you have in the past few years had supporting roles in a bunch of Oscary movies. And last year alone, I think you had um, Little Women and you had Dolomite is My Name. And how has that been? I mean, that, that's a departure from Mr. Show and Tim and Eric and, and that kind of thing. Is it fun to work on these sort of prestige uh y
2: movies? Oh, for sure. I mean, Little Women was one of the joys of my whole life. I mean, it was just the greatest thing to be on that set. Greta Gerwig is brilliant and one of the kindest, sweetest people you'll ever meet. And those young women are... A delight to be around their energy and Laura Dern and uh, Meryl Streep are fun and good, funny good and at sharp acting, and I've heard
4: those are those pretty two. good, they can do it. They can do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's give them that.
2: I'll let them do it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say. I'm uh, I never expected it, I don't expect it to ever happen again. I was thankful to be invited to do the post and yes little women and dolomite is my name and this is a echelon of filmmaking that i never uh imagined i would be included in as an actor certainly and um i don't sit around waiting for it to happen again and it, it just was wonderful i get
4: to, if i get to do more that's great I know you were at the, uh, the Vanity Fair Oscar party this year, right? Um,
2: I was. I loved it. I <laughs> had a good conversation with Ronan Farrow and uh, Marilyn Manson was fun to talk to. Uh, who else? Always Jeff Goldblum is fun to talk to. Ray and I were there. Catherine O'Hara and Bo, her husband. That was a great party. I mean, that's a great party. Um, especially if you get there early before it's too crowded. Right. And you can just hang out.
4: It feels like uh, that was like the last thing that happened before the world shut down. Uh, when I look it back was, on this year, huh? yeah. yeah. And when I search your name in Oscars, one thing that came up that is hilarious is you and David Cross doing a 1999 skit with Bill um,
2: Bill Mar with Bill
4: Maher. and you guys are in matching Vera Wang uh, gowns. So.
2: Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Had you have you been to the Oscars before? Uh, I was there for Nebraska. Yeah. I, I attended for Nebraska. The telecast is, the, except the musical numbers are great, but otherwise it's better to watch at home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Emmys is actually, it's longer, but it's a little more fun to be there uh, because there's I think there's just more people. It's more casual in a way. Still not totally casual, but it just is. Well, the, Globe, and, the Globes uh, is
4: the fun one, right? Are you, Globes is fun. Are you, do you have and, drinks at uh, the Globes, or do you try to keep it? Uh, my
2: favorite thing is the Governor's Ball after the Emmys. Okay. That's my favorite thing. Because my experience is that unlike the Oscars Governor's Ball, people actually attend the Emmys Governor's Ball. And since I'm friends with a lot of writers, it's an opportunity to see friends from New York who I don't see. You know, these shows come out with the big, huge writing staffs and I have tons of friends in those rooms and I can just wander around and say hi to people I haven't seen in years or say hi to maybe young writers whose work I like, who I've seen, you know, their work and gotten to know it. And that's the best time. I love that. The best of all. That's great. And people, people go to it and they stay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's great. And then the Vanity Fair Oscar party is awesome. (laughs) And then um and then it's downhill from
4: there. <laughs> Last thing before I let you go, you're a second city guy and you have mm-hmm. maybe my favorite Midwestern accent. What's the secret to a good Midwestern
2: accent? Wow, I never really thought about it. What is a Midwestern accent? I mean, I did Fargo and I had a That's an interesting strange semi-Canadian accent that they have. And I knew it because I went to. I spent a lot of time in Wisconsin as a kid, and I and in Boy Scouts, and a fair number of Boy Scouts were from Minnesota, uh, and so Minnesota has that similar accent. Anyway, that's a. I don't think that's a Midwestern accent, though. Let's
4: well, got that kind of flat. Buddy, I, that flat. I, vowel somebody's got to help me right?
2: understand what the hell uh, Midwestern <laughs> accent is because I, I speak in it, so I don't hear it.
1: Well, Joanna Robinson is on her hiatus, but she's back with me right now, uh, because you're going to be hearing from her a lot throughout this month, actually, because she did a lot of interviews for us with these Emmy contenders. And, uh, first up, Joanna, you talked to Caitlin Deaver. Oh my God. The great Caitlin Deaver, one of my favorite performers of all time.
0: Um, I've been following her closely since she appeared as a Wee child on Justified. Um, but she had <laughs> a stellar year last year with both book smart and unbelievable. It's fantastic. Um, really tremendous, uh, Netflix series, uh, Based on a true story about a young woman who was sexually assaulted and tried to report it and was not believed, you know, uh, our our favorite critic Barack Obama called it one of the essential watches of 2019. So I
1: mean, he is
0: America's finest film critic. There you go. So yeah. So Kaylin talked about sort of her big year because you know she's she's been around for a while, but this is her first big like she was at every award show, blah blah. And since we're awards podcast, I thought I'd ask her a lot about that stuff. And also she shared with me she's. Been at our party a couple years now. I think it's like... So um, I asked her for her favorite moments from the Vanity Fair Oscar party, which I thought might be fun for our listeners to hear. So here is... Yeah, the one that she yeah.
1: mentions I witnessed happen firsthand uh, and you told me about it and I was like, oh my God, I watched that. So that that was my moment in history.
0: Yeah, spoiler alert, a very famous musician is involved and, and Katie saw it all go down. <laughs> and I was there too. Caitlin Dever remembers <laughs> me being there specifically. Caitlin Dever, Katie Rich and a famous musician met at the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Um... One thing to note really quickly before we go into this interview is that uh, we recorded this a little while ago. Since then, um, one woman that Caitlin Deaver talks about working with, Lynn Shelton, has passed away. So you'll hear Caitlin talk about her in the present tense, and she just has some lovely things to say. We thought we would leave it in, but of course, Lynn Shelton has passed away since. So here is Caitlin Deaver on working with Lynn Shelton, on Booksmart, on Unbelievable, and her big year. <laughs> I wanted to uh, to start by asking you about that because I was uh, scrolling through your Instagram like a totally normal person would before an interview, and I was just sort of overwhelmed myself just looking at all of the events that you went to since I saw you last at South by, uh, 2019. <laughs> uh, so, um, um, you know, you're at the BAFTAs, you're at the Golden Globes, you're at the Oscars twice, you're doing everything. Um, what was the most sort of surreal experience for you in this last sort of incredible year you had?
6: It was so overwhelming. Um, <laughs> it was really, really, just a lot but it was a lot in the best way possible it was you know I think it's already overwhelming to be a part of two projects that people are are seeing and and understanding and just I think it was just overwhelming that people were were watching those those two projects you know it's 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 a rarity that that you even get to be a part of two projects in the same year that you love so much but the fact that they came out and you know people were showing so much love for both of them so that going at pretty much the same time because I remember I was at one point like overlapping you know uh, promoting both Unbelievable and Booksmart at the same time so it was just the best time I mean I, I had you know the people a part of both of those projects are just good and sweet and genuine people that I just love and care about so much and being around them really made all the difference you know and it, it was the most exciting thing ever. It was my first awards season um, press junket, I think. I mean, it was more than a junket because it lasted a couple of months. But I think that it was I was experiencing it all for the first time. And I won't ever do that again, you know you know, I won't ever experience it for the first time again. So I think it's, I was just really trying to soak every single little moment in as best as I could, because it all moves so, so fast. I think that's the other thing that was like, really surprising to me is that everything is so quick and on to the next. It was, it was, it was a whirlwind. It really was.
0: Did anyone give you any particularly solid advice on how to get through all of it with your sanity intact?
6: The thing that sort of really, really got me, it was sort of towards the end of it all. I was at the Golden Globes and Tom Hanks, <laughs> he came up to me and it wasn't necessarily advice he was giving me, but it was the way he spoke to me. It was it was really sort of like, I guess eye-opening for me in terms of like why we're all here and and he basically said to me like isn't this fun are we having such a good time this is amazing that we're all here together this is amazing and he was saying all of this to my face and while i was trying not to have a a complete panic attack
0: okay so you're in book smart which is this huge crowd-pleasing comedy hit you're in unbelievable which is another huge hit for netflix millions of people saw it President Obama put it on his must-watch list of 2019, a much more challenging uh, bit of material for people to watch, and yet they still tuned in for it. And then you went to Washington on top of all of that to advocate for the Debbie Smith Act. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about your going from working on Unbelievable to real-life advocacy?
6: The show had called me, and they wanted to make a trip out there um, and working with... With RAIN and all the people a part of RAIN are just just incredible people and they're just doing really, really amazing work. And they wanted us to go screen the show there in DC. And then we ended up going around and and speaking with several members of Congress trying to get this, uh, the Debbie Smith Act passed, which is basically an act that. Um, will help eliminate rape kit backlogging, which is obviously you know i was they they told me the number of rape kits that that are just sitting there, and I think they said it was about two hundred thousand rape kits just sitting there waiting to be tested, which is heartbreaking and I think is one of the many complicated reasons why people don't tell their stories is because well, you know, why would I when it just sits there and it's it's awful, it's awful. So in 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 trying to get the Debbie Smith Act passed, it was uh, it, it would at least help that and eliminate that. So it was really just an incredible day. It was honestly a bucket list day. I was walking around the Capitol and I was like thinking the whole time like who let me in here? I'm just an actor. This is insane. I was so grateful to be in that room with all of those people. It was wild. And the irony of of it all was at the end of the day, the room that we screened the show in um was actually where all the Brett Kavanaugh hearings happened. Oh my god. Um it just I think it just so happened to be in that room, but I mean it was just um uh, it's just been an amazing journey for me personally because I've never I've never been a part of anything like that and it really made me think on why I even wanted to be an actor in the first place and yes obviously I wanted to be an actor because it's just fun for me and I I have just I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life um because it's just it just it's so fulfilling, just uh it's just fun, I can't even think of any other word. It's just fun for me, and so to be able to do something fun and you know be a part of something that that's doing some good in the world and and giving a voice to the voiceless or telling a story that was somewhat buried, uh, you know what more could I ask for? It's been such an incredible um Learning experience for me, but to also watch the world learn about this issue more, because I think that you know we haven't been given. I mean, we haven't really seen it in 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 a, tr- a tr- truthful way. Um, I think in the past it's been this this subject has been a bit sugarcoated, or like I, I think in the I think that the. the really moving thing for me when we were first uh, talking about the show and I first got it. They told me that they wanted to shoot all of the sexual assault scenes from Marie's point of view, and that was something that was just, that really stood out to me because I think that in the past we've seen this that kind of scene sort of, like, overly sexualized in some sort of way, and so all of it has just been so, so... Um, so so good and such a such a learning experience for me, and it's been really good to see the world really take it in and learn from it as, as well.
0: Can you talk about? I mean, as much as as much as you can or want to, the actual act of, of filming some of the harder content in Unbelievable and sort of what steps were taken to ensure that it was done as thoughtfully and and um, as safely for you as possible.
6: Yeah. It, you know, that kind of scene is obviously a, a difficult one, but it's very vital and important to see in the show. So before we we got into it, I had a lot of conversations with Lisa Cholodenko, the director of the first three episodes, and... Um, Susanna Grant, the amazing Susanna Grant, the, the, both of those women are just so incredible. So, I'll, I mean, the comforting thing, one, was just being around women and and, and talking um, about this scene with women. It was really, really um, nice. And, you know, they had such, a, such an understanding of all of my boundaries and, and my comfortability. And it was just a, a conversation. And, and, you know, we, we talked out every single shot. And, and on the day, everything was just set out and planned. And the other thing that was planned was the fact that they carved out an entire day to shoot the scene alone. In the past, when I've whenever I've had to do a, a, a difficult scene, there's never an entire day dedicated to that scene because, especially on the films that I've done, they've been like really short shoots and they've they're trying to like really utilize their days and and pack everything in and um, production was really um, you know really giving in that way. And they knew that it was something that really needed to be cared for. And so there was an entire day for that scene. And I I didn't have to worry about anything else but that. And I could only I could only focus all of my energy onto that and then I think I went home on that day at a, at a reasonable hour too because we had finished, I think around like three or four o'clock, and it was I had like a nice morning to, morning to do it. I think it was just all everything was planned out very nicely, and um, my scene partner was also just very, just very careful and very caring and kind and everyone could everyone involved even not even just the actors but the you know the the camera operator and um the boom operator and the dp and and, and anyone at any point could say stop if they were feeling uncomfortable or they didn't even have to have a reason and that was something that was really really incredible to be involved with and um Yeah, it was also really great because in the room itself, I mean, yes, we were shooting on a stage and everyone could, um, we had the whole crew surrounding the room, but in the actual room there was only the camera operator and boom operator and then the actors, which is also just really, really nice as well. So everything about, because also I think that sometimes you're told it's a closed set and then it's not actually a, really a closed set, which is, they made it easy. They made it really easy.
0: So you, you're working on Unbelievable, which is, you know, got so many women in the cast and creatively behind the camera. And then you came off Smart, which had sort of a similar makeup of women creatives, women in the cast sort of thing. I'm curious, does that Change at all your your taste for what kind of projects you want to do going forward um, from coming off those two projects?
6: Yeah, I mean it does because I I I I think that we've made a lot of movement in terms of women directing more and more and more films and making female centric uh, projects uh, coming from a female voice. I think. We have made a lot of movement, but honestly, there's so much more movement to be done and whatever I can do to help that and help move it along, obviously I I have the ability to choose when I'm signing on to certain projects. I think that I definitely wanna work with more and more and more women. I think I've actually worked now 50-50 men and women um directors which is pretty cool um i mean working with Catherine Bigelow and Lynn Shelton and Olivia Wilde and Susanna Grant and um Lisa Cholodenko and all of those women i really really look up to and i i I've worked i actually worked with Lynn Shelton twice i think she's just the best person in the world she's just she's just the greatest oh my god i love Lynn Shelton
0: I'm wondering if your experience with all these female directors um, helped embolden you to you know, try directing for yourself. You directed your first music video uh, earlier this year with your sister, right?
6: It's always incredible to see a lady in charge. It's really, really cool. It's always so cool. I mean, the way Catherine Bigelow, the way she directs is just the most jaw-dropping thing you've ever seen. She's like, she's directing this insane, you know, uh, heavy, heavy, heavy film. Uh, Detroit. We did Detroit, and she is. She just floats through set, and she is just. She has got such a calm energy, but she is. She is really working, and she is. She is getting it done, and she is. Like really, such an inspiration. Um, but I think that it was actually Olivia. She was the one to sort of really push the idea in my head for me, because I think it was literally just an in my head idea. And I never really thought I could do it. I kind of and I remember talking to her about this. I said, well, you kind of have to be a good writer. And I don't know. I I mean, I have all these ideas floating in my head all the time, especially when I read scripts on my own i'm constantly visually thinking of things but i've never been able my my brain is so scattered that i don't know if i could I told her my, 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 my stress thoughts on this. I'm like, I don't know if I'd be able to like, really tell like a like a like a firm story beginning, middle, and end. I just don't know if I'm I'm I don't know if I'm cut out for that. So therefore, I just can't be a director. And she's like, Caitlin, what are you talking about? That is just that that is just false. It's false, and you need to get that out of your head, and you need to throw that idea in the figurative trash. And she said to start directing music videos. So I thought, okay, well. I'll direct me and my sister's music video to start. And it was a really, really cool feeling. Jason Reitman, who is also a a, a really just big inspiration for me, and he's one of my good, good friends, he was actually the one, too, to say, I think he had, I came to him and I was like, but I don't, I don't think I can direct because I didn't go to school and I didn't go to school. I didn't go to film school. He's like, literally what you're doing and wh- all the sets you're on is your film school. He said, I went to school to be a doctor. <laughs> um, so all of it, I think I was just placing a lot of doubt in my head. And Olivia was the one to be like, Caitlin, you just need to go and do it.
0: You said this thing that Olivia Wilde said to you uh, that I thought was so interesting because I think it could be interpreted in a couple different ways and I was wondering
6: how you interpret it which is this idea of like never sit down she never sat down herself she was always going and moving and discussing and having conversation with people even when we weren't shooting I don't even think she ever sat down to have lunch um, all of the actors would go and sit down and have a nice hour lunch but I we Olivia was always off discussing her next three scenes that she was gonna do that day. And I think that that's something that's like so, I don't even think she sat down in a chair when she was watching the monitors, which is something that a lot of people do. And I think it's okay to sit down then when you're watching the scene, but she, I don't even think she, I think she was just like standing and she was like on her feet and she was sort of just like moving while she was watching the scene go. And I think that that is something um so insane to be around and so moving to be around because she she felt so lucky to be there and she's you know she's she's the lady in charge she's 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 in charge of everything and she's she um is in charge of of how the set moves and how it goes and how what what the pace of everything is and she was the reason why that that movie was so fun to make you know she she made sure that everyone was happy, everyone was was having a good time. That there were snacks and there were there was music, and I mean, people were wrapped for the day sometimes, and and still wouldn't leave. And people were like, "No, you can go now." And they're like, "I don't want to because it's so it's, it's so fun to be here." Um, and she always refers to sets too as a construction site, which I think is so so true there's so much going on on a set and there's so there's so much chaos and it doesn't it, on on Olivia's set it doesn't feel like chaos it doesn't feel like anyone's like frustrated or or you know worried about getting you know every shot done for the day cuz that can also be like a a nerve-wracking stressful time like trying to trying to get in all the scenes in one day it's 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 it was never it was never, there was no stress ever. It was just, we're here, we're lucky to be here and let's just make the most of it. And, um, yeah, she never sat down and, (laughs) and I think that that's something that's just, you know, it's really inspiring. It's really inspiring. It's just, she's just the greatest.
0: All right. So my last question for you is, uh, you've, you, this is, this was your first like full blown, award season, press tour, extravaganza year. But you have been coming to the Vanity Fair Oscar party for, I think, like three years. Do you have a favorite Vanity Fair Oscar
6: party memory? Ooh, that's a good one. Okay, well, I think, oh, this is so hard. I think (laughs) the Vanity Fair (laughs) Oscar party is the most fun party ever. One, the year right before, I can only remember the parties because of my outfits that I was wearing. So I was wearing a suit one year, um, like a nudie suit, but I was like at a party for the first time with Olivia and she was in this gown that was just... Glowing, she just glowed that night, I mean she glows always, but she was wearing this dress fully made out of crystals, and she was sparkling like crazy <laughs> and I was all It was also the first time that I danced with Beanie, and it was the most fun to like be with them and be at a party with them for the first time because of course, after that we were at many parties together and doing many interviews and what not together but that was the very first time we were like in a room with other people and dancing and it was really really fun but then also this past Vanity Fair Oscar party I got a tap on the shoulder by someone and I turned around and it was Billie Eilish and (laughs) she she was like I love Unbelievable so much and I loved Booksmart I watched both of them but Unbelievable was so amazing I binged the whole show and I was like oh my god I can't believe this is happening right now um, I think those are the top two moments, I think, for me.
0: Those are really good moments. The Billie Eilish moment's a great moment. I uh, love it. All right, well, Caitlin Dever, thank you so much for chatting. It's nice to catch up with you a
6: year later. This has been so nice to talk to you. It's been a year, but I'm glad we got to do this catch-up. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. We'll be back next week.
1: Uh, Find us at VanityFair.com. Find reviews of so many of the things that we have discussed. And find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we love to hear from you. Um, You can also find us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Hillary. Hillabuster with two R's. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.
5: And this week's award for the best description of me listening to back episodes of Little Gold Men from film festivals and screenings goes to Katie Rich.
1: I basically cried through every episode.